0: So we have been looking for, well, this will be our fifth week, I guess, at um, these women who are listed in Matthew's genealogy. So Matthew, uh, as we've said, writes this genealogy to kind of offer a a pedigree for, um, it'll be okay. (laughs) To offer a pedigree for Jesus to demonstrate his qualifications as the Messiah that had been long foretold and would one day come. And, And interestingly enough, in that genealogy, in that pedigree, he includes five women. And what we've seen week after week is that each of these women that was included had kind of a scandalous story connected to them, right? We, we had a woman who uh, had to sleep with her father-in-law in order for him to properly fulfill his responsibilities to her. We had a prostitute uh, from the land of Canaan who obviously, given her line of work, was a notorious woman. Uh, we saw uh, an adulteress uh, who uh, was involved in an illicit relationship with uh, a very prominent king in the history of Israel. And, of course, we saw a foreigner, a woman who is from Moab, a uh, people who are actually the product of incest and who, by rights, was never ever supposed to be able to come into the presence of God. But somehow God brought him in. And, and what we've said week after week after week after week is that Jesus is... Genealogy, the purpose of including these women in Jesus' genealogy is to demonstrate that God is a God for all people. He is a God for the outsiders, not just the insiders. That Jesus came for the people who struggle who have a history who have a past who have who have a moral record that they're ashamed of or they feel guilty about he came precisely for those people and in fact he includes them in his family Well today we come to one more woman We come to the mother of Jesus, the actual mother of Jesus. We come to Mary, and she's different. She's not an ethnic outsider. She's actually an Israelite through and through. But she's still in danger of becoming an outsider. We read that this angel comes to her and says, Hey, uh, I want you to know you're going to be pregnant. And as soon as she she hears those words, she understands that uh, that means trouble. Because here is this teenage girl, she's probably around 15 years old, and she is now facing the prospect of life as an unwed mother. And that's hard enough in our culture, you have no idea how hard that was in a culture like the one Mary lived in. And you'll notice that the angel, when he gives her this announcement and explains what's going to happen to her, he doesn't say anything about Joseph. And that's kind of weird. I've always thought it's kind of weird. Because here she is facing a future as a teenage mother and the stigma that's going to go with it. Yes, she is going to conceive a child by the power of the Holy Spirit. A miracle is going to happen in her. But frankly, that doesn't really help her in dealing with the people in her life. I mean, she can't go to her father and say, Hi, Dad. Yeah, I'm pregnant. But don't worry, it's God's baby. Or her friend's. Or the people in her village. Frankly, this miracle isn't gonna help with any of these relationships. And Gabriel doesn't mention Mo or Joseph to her at all. He doesn't say to her, Look, Mary, this is gonna be hard. I know. Putting a pretty big job on your shoulders here. We in the heavenly realms understand that, but I want you to know that Joseph, the man that you are engaged to, the guy that you're supposed to marry, I want you to know he's a really good guy. And he's going to stick by you through this. You're not going to be alone in any of this. No, he doesn't say a word about Joseph to her. And so she thinks that she is going to be on her own. And yet, in verse 38, she says a remarkable thing. She says, I am the Lord's servant May your word to me be fulfilled. She she demonstrates this huge, incredible faith. We're going to look at that faith that Mary demonstrates in this story. You know, Mary, in many ways, you could almost call her the first Christian. I know the Old Testament saints, they looked forward to the coming of Jesus. Jesus himself says about Abraham, for example, Abraham saw my day, and he rejoiced, and I understand that, that those who were looking forward to the coming Messiah, the promised one, they had faith and they were saved by faith. But, but Jesus, or sorry, Mary is the first one to actually know who he was, who this coming one was actually going to be and She was the first one to respond to that news. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at her response. And we're going to break down that response a little bit. And we're going to see whether or not we understand what God wants all of us to do in terms of responding to this good news that God has come in the flesh. It's a good way of testing whether or not you are a believer. Have you responded to this good news the way Mary has? So first we're going to look at, What she responded to, and then we're going to look at the nature of her response. So let's begin with what she responded to. In verse 30, Gabriel is speaking to Mary, and he says, "...do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great." And he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, Mary is getting a lot of information here. Okay? This is like drinking from a fire hose. There's a lot of things being said by Gabriel. But it basically boils down to this. Gabriel is telling Mary, Mary, the impossible is happening. You are going to give birth to God. These terms, son of the most high, son of God, they are meant to, 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 to cause Mary to understand that this is not a birth like any other birth. This is not a birth of a, of a simply human being. This is a birth of a divine human being somehow. And he is going to reign forever, Gabriel says. His kingdom will never end. In other words, there's only one possibility around who this could be. He's got to be God himself. There's no escaping that announcement. There's no, there's no way of ignoring that announcement. You've got to understand, friends, that, that nowhere else in the history of the world has there been a religion, has there been a system of thought, has there been a philosophy that taught... That God would actually come and exist in the flesh like you and me. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. I remember reading stories about the Greek gods and the Roman gods. Yes, absolutely true. There are lots of religions that talk about gods inhabiting humanity somehow and coming in the form of a human being or in the form of an animal or something like that. But no religion comes and says the creator God. The ground of being. The all soul is actually entering into our world. You see, what Christianity teaches is that the ideal became real. That that, that the ultimate high became low. That the omnipotent one became impotent. That the metaphysical became physical. The creator of the universe became a single-celled organism. And because of that, that also means that the the invulnerable one became vulnerable. That the unassailable one became someone that you could hug. Now let, let that sink in. Let me press this into you a little bit more, if I may. In verse 35, it says... The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now understand, there's been a lot of holy people born in the world. Throughout history, there have been very, very good people. You read the autobiography, or not the autobiography. You read the biography of Siddhartha, who became the first Buddha. You read about his life. He lived an absolutely exemplary life. Gandhi lived a remarkable life. You could call Gandhi a holy one. He was a a good human being. You could say that about Mother Teresa. You could say that about all kinds of people. But here's the thing. Jesus was different. He, He didn't come just as kind of a guru. The way Buddha understood himself. As someone who had found a path to transcendence. To overcoming the, the, the suffering and the illusion of suffering that this life produces in us because of our self centeredness. He didn't come as a teacher who showed us a way to, to find life. No, no, no. He came as the Holy One, as the Son of God. He's God. I belabor this point. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, and even if Jesus isn't who he says he is, every single human being has to wrestle with the claim. We've got to deal with it. We've got to face it head on. We have to investigate it. Most people haven't. For most people, the incarnation of Jesus Christ has not Hit them. They, they're, they're not very interested in this idea. But imagine if this was happening today. Imagine if there was someone walking around in the world today. And he was able to heal people simply with a touch or with a word. He was able to feed multitudes with just a little bit of, of food. He was, he was able to walk on water and tell storms to stop. You remember the, the, the wind and the snow that came in the last couple of days? He could stand up and he could say, I'm sorry, storm, but there are too many people who are traveling for Christmas get-togethers right now. You must stop. How? That's what my father would say. And it just stopped and everything became calm. Someone who could raise the dead. Someone who could go up to a casket and say, Peter, Anna, get up. And they would sit up. And, and imagine if this was, was all well documented and this was all verified by a number of witnesses. How would you respond if this person came to this world, did all those things, and then said, I am God in the flesh, and I have come here to tell you what life is actually about, to tell you the things that really matter and the things that don't matter, where our focus should be, how you should live to to find peace and harmony. I've come here to show you what it means to have a relationship with the living God. Would you just say, well, that's nice. Of course not. See, Jesus is the first person in history to actually make the claim that he was God in the flesh. And he convinced tons of people. Probably most of you in this room believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And you're just one of of billions of people who through history have believed that this one person, in a unique way, was the creator clothed in our humanity, who dared to become like one of us. And he has changed the world. The course of history has been altered because of this one person who claimed to be God and convinced so many people that he did. Imagine if the CRA called you one day and said, you have a long lost uncle who just died and has left you a million dollars. Would you just say, "Mm, I don't know. Or would you say, well, that's kind of worth an investigation. Wouldn't you want to deal with it? How do you deal with it? Well, I propose to you that you perhaps consider dealing with it the way Mary did. How did Mary deal with it? Well, there's certain stages that Mary goes through in this this section of of Scripture. I think it's it's beautiful. And we're going to look through them. First of all, Mary deals with it with skeptical incredulity. The first step is skeptical incredulity incredulity. Mary is not sucked in by, the, by Gabriel's message. She's skeptical. Ske- skeptical. She's skeptical. She doesn't say, oh, that's great. Tell me more. This is wonderful news. No. In verse 29, it says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this would be. This is actually a word from which we get our word logic from. It's an accounting word And it means to rationalize and to reason and to think things out in your head. Mary hears these words and she says, wait a minute. How can that be? In fact, that's what she says in verse 34. How will this be since I am a virgin? I know that people look back on history and they think that people from the first century were kind of gullible. And they believed all kinds of weird magical things. But Mary understood how sex worked. She knew where babies came from. And she says, how can this be? Today we're skeptical also because of we say we're scientific people. And they weren't very scientific people. But, but she was skeptical not just because she understood the science behind procreation. But because of her religion. She was part of a people group, basically the only people group in the known world at the time, who who had been told since the founding of their religion, if I can use that language, founding of their religion, that the one thing you must never, ever, ever do is actually say that God could become a human being. That God could be an image That you could ever see God with your eyes. And the reason was because God said, I am a spirit. I am the creator. You can't contain me in anything. And if you try to do that, if you try to build something that that represents me, all you're going to do is you're going to start to worship that thing as though it's me. And that's idolatry. So the people of Israel were told for centuries, don't ever, ever, ever believe it when someone tells you that they're God. And now Mary's saying, Mary's being told... God is supposed to inhabit your womb. Mary's not stupid. Mary reacts the exact same way that you would if the CRA called and said, Hey, guess what? Your long-lost uncle left you a million dollars. You would say, this is a scam, like the Nigerian prince emails I get. And yet... As she reasons and as she continues to listen, eventually what does Mary do? Well, she enters to the stage of what I'll call confused submission. In verse 38, she says something remarkable. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Remember, She's risking ruining her life here. If this happens to her, she will be marked by her community as a moral failure. She will have the scarlet letter. Not on her forehead. I don't think that's where Hester Prynne had it. I think she had it on her chest. She will be marked as an outcast. And yet, knowing that, strangely, she submits. Now, she doesn't say, again, she's not saying, this is great. Let's do it. Oh, no. She doesn't fully get what's happening, but she does submit because she says what? I am the Lord's servant. You see, the best alternative that she could understand in this, out of all the options that she faces this news from Gabriel is she can say no, she can ignore it, she can pretend she had a hallucinogenic moment, she can tell, say that her burrito made her feel weird and so voices were talking to her, she had something that upset her stomach, she can say all these things, but what she came to realize is, is that if this is from God, there's no stopping it. She calls herself the Lord's servant, the Lord, the Christ, the King, the Kurios, the the one who is in charge. What I'm trying to say here is, look, people often come to the Christian faith and they come to Jesus and they say, Look, I will believe Jesus. I will believe in him when all my objections are satisfied or all my questions are answered. What does Jesus say about the origin of the universe? What's his view on that? What is Jesus' view on politics? What is Jesus' view on sexual ethics? I want to know those things. Before I bite down, I need some answers. And what I'm here to tell you is is that if that's what you're waiting for, it will never ever ever happen for you because you're asking the wrong questions. Remember, here's the question that matters, the one question That matters before all other questions. Is Jesus actually God in the flesh? That's the question. That's the only question that really matters. Every other question will will wait and can be answered. Because think about it. If he is the creator... In the flesh, he does not come to this world to negotiate ideas with us. That would be ridiculous. God is not there to affirm our ideas about politics or about ethics or or about the origin of the universe. He's not there to do that. What he's there to do is not reaffirm our ideas, but to make known his. Because the people who are walking in darkness because of our sin, need light. And if Jesus is who he says he is, the light has come into the world. Of course you're going to have questions. I still have questions. I've got a lot of questions for Jesus. When I get to heaven, I know that I get a one-on-one at some point. And I've got my laundry list of questions too. But because the one question that really matters has been answered for me, those other questions can wait. Because Jesus is not my homeboy, Jesus is not my advisor, Jesus is my Lord. And even when I can't understand everything that he wants for me, and it doesn't always make sense to me, I say to myself, wait a minute, if I tried to explain to an ant why he ought not come and live inside my house because I will try to kill him, he is better off staying outside, he's not going to understand a word I'm talking about. And the same, if that's true between the difference in uh, in being between me and an ant, the difference between me and God is infinitely greater than that. And there are just some things that my puny little mind are not going to understand. Frankly, friends, I don't want a God that I can fully understand. I don't know about you, but that does not turn my crank. If I'm going to give my life to someone and and say, you have authority over my life. You make the decisions for me about what is right and what is wrong, about what matters and what doesn't, about where I'm going and where history is going. You get to decide those things. I don't want it to be a person who I can totally figure out. I want it to be a person who feels nothing like a peer. And everything, like a transcendent being who is shrouded Ultimately in mystery. I don't want to just be a little less smart than my God. I want him to blow my mind with his being. Now, that doesn't mean you can't know anything. Mary does start to come to some understanding. And it's, it's recorded for us in her song. It's called The Magnificat. It's a beautiful Latin name for her song, and in her song, this is what Mary says. Beginning at verse forty-nine, she says, "The mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him, from generation to generation." Now, what Mary is doing is she's starting to put some things together. Okay. She says, "The holy one, the mighty one, has done." Uh, sorry, what? Uh, the mighty one has done great things for me. He is the mighty one, the just one, the powerful one. But then in verse 30 or 50, she says, His mercy extends to those who fear Him. Now you've got to understand something. For the people of Israel, and frankly, for people down through the centuries, the, the big riddle that everybody's trying to figure out is how do you combine the justice and mercy of God? How do you combine them so that one does not swallow up the other? If God is going to be just, he has to deal with sin. Humanity is sinful. I think like like G.K. Chesterton said, it's probably the only Christian theological doctrine that is utterly self-evident. Who would argue with that, that human beings are sinful, that we are flawed, that we err, that we are self-centered? It's the root of all our problems. And so God's justice has to deal with that. But, but God says that he is merciful. And so how in the world can he be merciful and just? He's got to deal with it, but he's got to be merciful because the Bible says that he loves us and cares for us. And it's this conundrum that down through the ages, the, the prophets were speaking to and the people were searching the scriptures to try to understand. And here Mary is now finally starting to put this thing together. She's discovering that in her kid, <laughs> her son... Justice and mercy are going to meet. Because remember, Gabriel tells her, you're to call him Jesus. And the name Jesus means God saves. Parents name their children, right? Mary doesn't get a shot at saying who this is going to be. Gabriel tells her, this is what God the Father wants him to be. Wants him to be called Jesus because he would be the Savior. Now, does she understand the cross yet? Probably not. It's doubtful that she understands everything. But she knew that God in Jesus had come to save. But not just save this vague thing we call humanity. Oh no, this is the last thing. And this is the penny that's got to drop for every one of us. She understood that he came to save her. You notice... That in the Magnificat, and certainly in verse 49, it says, For the Mighty One has done great things for me. The Magnificat is full of me things. He's done this for me. He's done that for me. And Mary is looking at all of salvation history. She's looking down the corridor of the Old Testament because she's a good Jewish girl. So she knows what her, her people have believed for centuries. And she is discovering to her, her, it's blowing her mind to her surprise and to her awe and, and, and to her wonder. She is discovering that all of salvation history is coming down to her. And that it was for her. Because God has done great things for her. He has come to save her personally. And you see, what is true for Mary is true for you. And it's true for me too. It's true for anybody who puts their trust in Jesus. That he has done great things for you. God became a little baby for you. God lived a life of hardship and poverty for you. Jesus went to the cross and he suffered unspeakably, paying the penalty for you. The mighty one has done great things for you. See, the the penny of faith drops, if I can put it that way. It finally settles into your heart when you go, wait a minute, this story isn't just for Mary it isn't just for all these people down through the generations this story is for me you have to realize that your biggest problem is that you are a sinner who who is in rebellion against your creator but if rather than destroy you because of your sinful rebellion against your creator jesus was willing to come into this world be clothed in the flesh to live among us to become so close to us that we could touch him and as soon as we were able to touch him We reached out, we grabbed him, we slammed him to a piece of wood, we stuck it in the ground, and we laughed and mocked at him, and said, he calls himself the son of God. Let God save him now. And we spit upon him, and we jeered him, and we ignored him, and we did all of that because of our sin. And he knew it was coming, and he took it anyway. And who did he do that for? Not just Mary, not just the people of Israel. Not just the good guys who have lived over the past centuries. He did it for you. The person sitting in the third or the fourth or the fifth pew who strangely enough came to church this Christmas morning. Why? I can tell you ultimately why. You didn't come because your family asked you to. You didn't come to keep peace around the Christmas dinner table this afternoon. You didn't come because that's custom. You came because Jesus wants you to hear That that old story that people around the world celebrate every Christmas is for you. You know, a Christian is someone who is constantly walking around dazed and confused. What's that album, Dazed and Confused? Who's that by? Zeppelin. Zeppelin. They don't know what they're talking about. A Christian is the real dazed and confused one. You know why? We're confused because we don't understand it all. But we're dazed because we are constantly in wonder at the fact that Jesus came and did this for us. You know your own heart. You know you don't deserve it. And so you wake up every morning believing in Jesus and thinking to yourself, I can't believe. I can't, I can't. It's weird, right? You believe, but you're saying, I can't believe, I believe. Let's pray. Father, Father, oh, how wonderful you are to send your son into this world That we might be freed from all the sin that so easily entangles us. And so that we could run the race of life without the burden of guilt, without the burden of the fear of death, without the burden of constantly wondering whether we're doing it right or measuring up. We get to run the race with joy and wonder because we are free. We get to run the race like Mary who who at that moment didn't know if she was going to be consigned to a lifetime as an outcast and a single mom or what. But it was okay. It was okay because you had done great things for her. And you have done great things for us. I pray that all of us, Lord, would stand in awe and wonder at that. In your son's name we pray. Amen.